main purpose of that uh, message was to identify how Christ was recognized by the two disciples in the breaking of bread and how that ties into communion. For us, we do recognize Christ, of course, through his word, of course, through his spirit, of course, through our brothers and sisters, but in a very special, real, and, and uh, you know, unique way, we recognize Christ through the breaking of bread that takes place at the table. And so today we move on to cover the, the second half of Luke's resurrection uh, accounts. Now, this which, what takes place in Luke 24 is not uh, the actual resurrection itself. This is sometime after the resurrection. And so in these days of Easter, we are remembering how, what the book of Acts says here in these last few verses, uh, that he had you know, given commands, and then after being uh, pre- presented to his disciples, he then talked to them for 40 days. He spent time with them. That's what we're remembering in these celebrations of Easter. Uh, one of the things that I believe is so beautiful about the way that the church calendar is set up is that the Easter account, the, the account of Jesus coming up from the grave, defeating death, is so important that we can't just celebrate it in one day. Think of how even the the general culture, maybe general Christian culture, celebrates Christmas, right? It, you, you start hearing the first Christmas songs the day before Thanksgiving, and and then for an entire month, songs about, you know, snowmen and jingle bells and horses and Jesus and a manger and the innkeeper, the drummer boy. I mean, it's an entire month, a litany of uh, topics, ceremony, remembrance of one day uh, that we celebrate on the calendar. Uh, and that event of Christ's birth was surely worthy of a month worth of celebration. And so the church throughout the ages in her wisdom over the years has set up Easter in the same manner. Um, We traditionally, Protestants uh, who are not from a high tradition church, we typically just celebrate Easter on one day. And my goal in celebrating Easter every week of Easter this year and in future years is that we would give more attention to the remembrance of Christ's resurrection. Uh, We so often remember his death, and so little do we remember his resurrection in conjunction with that. Christ did atone for our sins on the cross. He reconciled us, it says, Paul says in uh, Colossians, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself on the cross, but in the same way, Jesus is defeating a final enemy of us, uh, death, through his resurrection. So we looked at last week in the end of, of Mark's gospel, we looked at how Jesus is resurrected, Jesus rises from the dead, and then the angels tell the women, uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Josie, or or uh, Salome, uh, these women who went along with, with her, the angel tells them to go tell the disciples that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. But we looked at how at Mark 8, uh, Mark 14, 8, or 16, 8, uh, it ends with the women running and being terribly afraid and telling no one. And so we see that even in the resurrection, we still need Christ to do a work on the remaining fear and doubts that are in our heart, which we'll recover today. So 
on this idea, these chapters are really talking to us about the purpose of Christ in coming and that purpose being transferred to the church. Uh, again, as I just mentioned, we're going to look, we're going to re-highlight this idea of fear, how the disciples are actually afraid, even though Jesus has just defeated all of their enemies, they still remain in fear. We're going to look at how Luke emphasizes the bodily nature or bodily aspect of the resurrection, not that he says that, not that he's saying Christ only raised bodily, but rather that Christ is asserting in these experiences that he's the real deal. He's not some uh, ghostly figure. And then Jesus himself describes his mission as coming and being the Messiah, which you may have heard an echo of this morning in the uh, Sunday school hour. And then finally, what is the purpose of the church? Why do we exist? Who started this whole thing? Where is this whole thing going? What's it all about? Why why do we come here? Uh, why Why do we live in a community that seeks to bring the gospel to the world? I believe that These verses in these chapters are the most clear description from the mouth of Jesus himself as to our purpose for existing. So, just like in Mark, we see the resurrected Christ seeking out the disciples. Jesus doesn't raise from the dead and then just kind of write it down or tweet about it as if it's some fact in history that we then have to you know, kind of deal with. He actually goes and seeks out the disciples. The disciples, if you remember after, uh, you know, what we celebrated on Good Friday, everyone scattered, uh, each goes their own way. And Jesus comes as the good shepherd, if you will, and he gathers them together and then seeks them out. He goes after them when they have run away, they've run in fear. And so just as at the end of Mark, Jesus uh, comes and when he's risen, the disciples are yet still afraid. In verse 36, he says, peace to you. We looked a few weeks ago at how that was the beginning of the gospel presentation. In Luke 11, Jesus sends out the 72, and they go two by two, uh, you know, a good buddy system. Um, They go out and preach the gospel, and what is the opening words that they are to say? Jesus tells them to say, peace be on this house or peace to you. So Jesus coming and declaring peace you know, he arrives in the midst of the house and declares peace to the disciples. Jesus is coming and bringing the gospel to these ones who need the gospel the most. Uh, many liberal theologians who doubt the nature of Christ's resurrection say that, well, it's not important whether Jesus raised from the dead or not. It's just important that resurrection faith occurred to the disciples, as in they were imbued with this uh, spirituality that was Uh, not only wrong in terms of factual truth, but also wrong in purpose. Here, Luke is saying the gospel did not originate from the apostles. This is vitally important. God himself brought the message of reconciliation to us. the, the, The apostles did not manufacture a gospel, but rather they received the good news from Jesus himself. Here, Jesus opens their hearts declaring the gospel, which is peace to you. That's why I'm so, uh, I'm so frustrated and in, in tension when I see people presenting the gospel, as it were, and, you know, in a turn or burn style fashion. If, if you don't know what I mean, they just basically stand on a street corner and announce that you're all damned and there's no hope and turn to Jesus or else God will kill you. These, and, you know, it is true that they will face judgment, but in the manner in which the gospel comes, the message to us is 
Be reconciled to God because he's being reconciled to you. And there's an open and free call. And so Jesus seeks out the the disciples, brings the gospel to them, and then at that moment, he then, by the Spirit, is able to see into their hearts. He says, in in verse 37, it says, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And look at the insight that he gains by the Spirit, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, this is a beautiful picture. Jesus is saying peace to you, and yet at that very moment, they become afraid, and they become troubled in heart. If the gospel is presented in a way that is, that is possible to believe without the superposition uh, or interaction of the Holy Spirit transforming someone's heart, then may I submit, you are not presenting the gospel to someone. Here, Jesus himself presents the gospel. He says, peace to you. I'm here. Everything's fine. I've defeated death and I'm alive. And God's really with us. Not as they said earlier in Luke. If you remember on the road to Emmaus, one of the disciples had said, he was a prophet mighty indeed, but we had hoped that he was the one to be the Messiah, right? As in they lost hope after he was killed that he was actually going to be the promise to Israel. And so at this point in Luke, Jesus is arriving and saying, no, I I really am the Messiah. Uh, We didn't lose in the end. I defeated death. And at this point, they're troubled and they're afraid. And so it seems that the disciples are not only afraid here, but that the root of this fear is actually an unbelief. So you can't manufacture belief, according to the Gospels. The grace by which we are saved, that grace which isn't of ourselves, is faith. The, the faith, that special spiritual gift that's given to us, doesn't, it, we don't manufacture it from our hearts. So on the preaching side, you can't preach a gospel that can easily be believed without the supernatural interaction of the Holy Spirit. But on the receiving side of the gospel, you cannot believe unless you receive that faith as a free gift from God. In the midst of their doubt, unbelief, Christ is not finished with them. Neither in our moments of doubt and weakness, Christ is not finished with us. Over and over again, as we've been going through the Gospels this year, my, my meta theme, if you will, is that Christ does things that are completely unexpected. In the midst of doubt, in the midst of faithlessness, uh, Jesus doesn't run from the person. He doesn't rebuke them into uh, condemnation, but rather rebukes them, admonishes them, and says, do not disbelieve, but rather believe. In like manner, those who assert their own righteousness, like the rich young ruler, Lord, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Uh, you know, he turns those people away. Christ is completely outside of our expectations. He does things that constantly surprise us. One of my favorite aspects of scriptural memory is the ability over time when you read the scriptures, you'll, you'll read something and it will remind you of something else. Last night while I was in Exodus, I was uh, looking at how Moses had actually been called by God and Moses himself was being elected or adopted by God to go and do this special mission. And then it reminded me about that, you know, then I started thinking about adoption. And this is why scriptural meditation is so vital to you as a believer. I was then reminded of, of the rich young ruler when he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And think about that for a second. You and I, sons, daughters, who have parents who eventually will give us an inheritance, we don't perform for our inheritance. We receive it. And the heart of the rich young ruler is, what must I do to inherit? See, he hasn't been 
adopted. Anyway, so Christ comes and does an amazing thing in the midst of their doubt and fear and unbelief and foolishness. Christ does not cast them away. He doesn't go get another 12, but rather he begins to reconcile with them. So Luke goes on from here, and he begins to emphasize the bodily nature of the resurrection. Why is this so important? Because you and I, our great hope is not to, at the end of our days, go to the pie in the sky, uh, lofty heaven. Have you ever seen the Philadelphia cream cheese commercials? If not, look it up on YouTube. It's phenomenal. They present a picture of heaven that, where there's pearly gates and golden harps, and basically heaven for the Philadelphia cream cheese company, Kraft, uh, is clouds of cream cheese. Um, but I would submit to you that popular American culture has a very ethereal perspective on heaven. It's this place that we go to in the sky. It's, um, it's somewhat detached from the idea of physicality. In that way, it's sort of Gnostic. That is, the body, physical things are really bad, and spiritual things are really good. You see this a lot in the modern spirituality of you know, the, the cult of Oprah, etc., where she just, you know, is advocating that you get in touch with your spiritual side. May I submit to you that Christianity is not a religion where we are focused on dying and going to heaven. That is a benefit. Paul says that if I'm to be absent from the body, I will be at home with the Lord. So in some real way, when we die, we do uh, believe quite, uh, quite truly and easily that our spirit, our soul, will have a habitation with the Lord. But the great hope of the Old Covenant and New Covenant scriptures is resurrection into a body to live as true, fulfilled, redeemed humanity forever interacting with our Maker. And, and that is the way in which the resurrection takes place and is a foretaste of the resurrection that we will experience. The resurrection, as it's demonstrated by Jesus, is the main goal of Christian uh, life and ministry and the gospel. And so for, uh, for that reason alone, these passages are beautiful to us. So Jesus uh, goes and he presents himself to the disciples and he's not at all a specter or a spirit. He's not a ghost who's just floating around and kind of, you know, like if he ran to give you a high five, he, he would just always kind of miss because he doesn't have a body. No, Christ is real. He really rose from the dead. He really came back to life. If you don't believe that the end goal of Christian, uh, the Christian faith is bodily resurrection, then the resurrection of Christ into a real body is of very little importance. So Christ answers their fears and doubts, again, not with rebuke and condemnation, but rather with encouragement and engagement. And so he, he then, you know, asks them for a fish. He eats the fish. And then he goes on to describe his purpose. In Luke 24, 39, he says, see my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Jesus is not at all about uh, blind faith. You and I, we are commonly uh, in battle with those in the culture who, especially what you might call the militant atheists, who accuse Christians of basically this idea of taking a leap of faith. And Jesus Christ, in this passage, demonstrates he does not want the disciples to have any doubt at all concerning his resurrection. Now, we, uh, we often give Doubting Thomas a bad rap. In fact, we call him Doubting Thomas because he didn't believe. And I said this uh, a week ago, but Doubting Thomas, or Thomas, let's just call him Thomas, I don't think he needs that uh, you know, name, um, 
Thomas, all Thomas demanded was the same evidence that everyone else had in the previous account. What happened? Thomas was like out at Kroger one day and everybody else, everybody else got to see Jesus in the flesh and they got to touch him. And Jesus, uh, what does Thomas say? Unless I put my finger in his hole, uh, in, the, in his hand, and into his, the hole in his side, uh, I won't believe, right? What is Jesus in these very verses saying? He says, touch me and see. What is the common phrase from Yahweh over and over again in the Old Covenant? Come and worship at the Lord. Acknowledge the harvest that he gave you in the land, for he is good. His love is everlasting. It endures for thousands of generations. May I submit that thousands of generations have not yet happened on the earth. Um, Over and over again, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what we're invited to at the table week by week. Here, Jesus is saying, touch me and see. He wants the disciples to be completely confident. Not only have they been uh, quickened by the faith of the Holy Spirit, which we'll see in the next two weeks in in Pentecost, but also they themselves had firsthand evidence of the true nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what the beautiful thing about this is they have faithfully transmitted that uh, witness through the scriptures, through the church, as we'll talk about in just a minute. But here he says, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus is basically saying to the disciples, I want all doubt to be removed. That's the answer for you and I when we doubt, when we have debates about the faith, when we have uh, issues of the faith that we're not settled on. In no way do I hope that if you have a problem with doctrine that you hear at this church, read in uh, the books that we have in our recommended list, in no way am I hoping that you just kind of take it on my word. I want you to study, engage, debate, wrestle with God, be like Jacob, and until you attain either faith or doubt concerning a certain thing, I don't want you to just kind of blindly believe because I believe. That's what I think Jesus is getting at here. He wants the disciples to truly know, to truly understand. Now, thank, thanks be to God, we have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, but for these disciples at this time, this was the most important thing for them to encounter. The eventual faith that the disciples arrive at after seeing Jesus is not irrational, but rather it is the most logical conclusion based on the circumstances, having been eyewitnesses themselves. You and I, we, again, we're we're accused of having irrational beliefs, but rather our faith is not at all irrational. Our faith isn't irrational, but rather it's anchored in a number of things that are supremely rational and quite evidence-based, if you wish. Uh, First, the historical evidence of the resurrection. The case is that all of those who uh, believed that they saw Jesus Christ in bodily form, almost 90% of them died a death of horrific, uh, you know, executions, whether it's, you know, a crucifixion or drawn and quartered or being run through with swords or being shot uh, with arrows. Each one of these people had the opportunity to recant, and in no way did they do that. That kind of evidence is evidence that any Supreme Court would just have a summary judgment about. They would just say that the case is done, if these uh, accounts are true, that people died for the uh, fact which was concerned in such a large number, it would just be, the case would be closed immediately. 
Another thing that you cannot deal with if you are, you know, any serious student of history is the meteoric rise of Christianity in the first two centuries of, of this, uh, you know, side of BCAD. The first two centuries present a tumultuous time throughout the Roman Empire, uh, the regions of what you might call early antiquity. Um, and in this, this place, or sorry, late antiquity, um, in this place, historically, there's no reason for Christianity to rise on the scene in such a dramatic way unless it was, unless it was true. The continuation of Christianity through the, throughout the ages, despite extreme persecution, including such instances in uh, the 1700s in Japan of every single Christian being wiped out, same thing happened in China, same thing happened in, at, almost in India, Ex time and again, extreme persecutions come against Christianity, and yet it is resilient in the midst of severe opposition. That is very hard to deal with from just a debate standpoint. How do you, how do you, how do you answer, what is, the, what is the most logical reason that Christianity has been this resilient throughout the centuries? You have to have an answer for that. And then finally, thanks be to God, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit confirming the truth of the gospel as it's presented by the ministers of his church. That is, of course, the bedrock at which upon further ex, uh, examination gives rise to uh, being able to anchor in multiple places. That is the capstone and really cornerstone of the Christian faith. It both is the foundation and the ornation at the top of, of the structure of your faith, my faith. This is why we believe. It's actually the most rational conclusion presented with the evidence, if you look at the evidence con concretely. So, Christ, at this point, he begins to summarize his reason for coming. Uh, Jesus did not just come simply to atone for sins, but rather he came in a context of demonstrating Yahweh's faithfulness to Israel. We have a song that we sing here at this church um, quite frequently called Yahweh, and um, in, in case you've never heard it demonstrated, uh, Yahweh is the name for uh, the God of the Old Testament as he revealed himself to the patriarchs over time. Uh, Yahweh is a phonetic pronunciation of what's called the Tetragrammaton, which just means Y-H-W-H. That's in the English letters for the Hebrew equivalent. And what, what it means is that Yahweh himself, God himself, revealed himself to Israel through the patriarchs, through the prophets of old, and over time made promises to them. That's the context for what Jesus is about to be saying in verse 44. Luke 24, 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you. So he's saying, I've already said this to you, but he's summarizing, while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, the law of Moses does not include only Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. It also includes Genesis and Numbers, though those books do not contain uh, in a very serious way, do not contain scriptural provisions, as in don't eat oysters, but you can eat salmon or whatever. Um, the law of God, the law of Moses, was given in the first five books. So Jesus is saying the foundation of the, the Hebrew scriptures, the old covenant scriptures, these are the foundation for the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, and they speak about me. He then goes on to say the prophets. He's talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the minor prophets, uh, the, the minor 12, 
And then finally, he references the Psalms. When, when you get to the Psalms, of course, he's, in, in his day, Psalms is Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and probably some other books. But suffice it to say, these uh, phrases, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, you can't open your Bible and find the book of Prophets. You, you have to go to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, etc., you, so, likewise, with the Psalms, we know that it's talking more than just the songs that David wrote. Um, so, Jesus is saying in this passage, everything in the scriptures which was written about me, I have come to fulfill all of it. Now, what I believe is beautiful about this is that what he's essentially saying, in a way, is all these books are talking about me. It's not just that there's a majority of the material in those books which reference me. I think he's saying everything in these books is about me, and I've come to fulfill all of it, not some of it with future fulfillment. He says, I've come to fulfill all of it. He then goes on to say, um, concerning his you know, mission, he then goes to explain what comes after not only was it promised by Yahweh that a Messiah would come, but also that through him, a global mission of mercy and reconciliation would go throughout the whole world. Those prophets, if you read them, they do not just contain descriptions of the Messiah. They also describe how Yahweh is going to save his people, that his Messiah will come and save his people in Israel, and then through that, that will trickle out to all of the earth. Um, you and I, we may not be trickle-down trickle economic theorists, but God is in this way, in that he is going to send a blessing on Israel, and through that, the blessing will pour out into all of the earth. And so at this point, we begin to connect Christ's mission to our mission, our purpose. And so here, Jesus is continuing, and he provides a summary of the scriptures. He said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now, what he's saying there is that all the prophets, the law of Moses, the Psalms, uh, they are all about this fact, that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So if you read the Old Covenant Scriptures and do not arrive at implications, conclusions, pointers of that, then you are missing the point of the Old Covenant Scriptures. He then goes on to say, and... The next part of this uh, drama, if you will, is that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. When Isaiah in Isaiah 2 says that the law will go out from Zion, he is not saying, as so many uh, terrible dispensationalist theologians assert, uh, that eventually, after Christ returns, that the law will then go out from Zion. The law which is talking about reconciliation and repentance in Christ's name, is going to go out from Zion or Jerusalem now. Isaiah's prophesying about this moment, not a future moment. Whenever we read or study the Old Covenant, we must find not only Christ, but also his church on her mission. So in that way, the Old Covenant scriptures, if you remember, we did a series for, I think it was 18 weeks, um, 19 actual messages, uh, 18 or 19 sermons on Christ in the Old Testament, but you could equally see that you are there being identified as being a member of the church in those redemptive mercy missions. 
Not only that, according to Jesus Christ, or according to him, he is the purpose of Old Testament prophecy, and that his purpose and the church's mission is the main point of the Old Testament. In no way at all does Jesus assert that the Old Testament contains any sort of end-time prophecy, at least in this passage. So, if you believe that Old Covenant prophets are mainly speaking about eventual destruction or, you know, some terrible thing that happens at the end of the age, why do you believe that that is even a a valid category for Old Testament prophecy? May I submit to you that the Old Testament prophets are mainly speaking about Christ and his church, and that what comes through his church is a redeemed, restored, reconciled humanity, not one that is destined for global destruction. Um, I don't really like the idea of God raining down hellfire at the end of the age, with most of the world unconverted, with the Antichrist uh, doing his thing. I don't really think that the Bible teaches that, and I would just humbly submit that as you explore that idea, because that's very familiar for most Protestant evangelicals, as you explore that idea, I would ask you to examine what is the basis for your opinion that the Old Testament prophets are speaking about anything other than Jesus and his church. So, Christ connects this grand view to the disciples, and at this point brings them into the divine mercy mission of God. Remember, Yahweh has promised through David, through Moses, through the prophets, I'm going to send you a Messiah who's going to bring you out of your exile and bring you into the promised land, and he is going to deliver the evil that's in your heart, which prevents you from accomplishing the law or doing, doing law. And, and not only that, he will write the law on your heart through his spirit. And so Jesus is then saying, part of Yahweh sending a Messiah is then eventually the sending out of the world from Jerusalem, and I am integrating you into that purpose. Luke 24, 48 through uh, 49, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of, the fa- of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The disciples, their purpose is to confirm the truth of the prophecies that have been fulfilled after the power from on high arrives. So just getting a timeline here, Jesus says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to send the promise of the Father. You're going to have power, and then you're going to leave Jerusalem. Okay? These disciples are going to be the ones that proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in Christ's name, not another. Luke, having completed his account of Jesus' life, includes transitioning language in the final chapter of his gospel recording the ascension. So this is an ascension Sunday. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But Luke summarizes his book with a little bit of overlapping information. And then when we pick up in Acts, in Acts 1, uh, Luke then reiterates some of those ideas. Just um, for just so you know, Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And many people, uh, according to early church historians, they actually believe that Luke originally kind of made them two separate things and then bound them up together when he finally delivered them. And here in Acts 1, there's some transitioning language. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so if Luke has dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in Luke in the, in the Gospel of Luke, then surely the book of Acts deals with all that Jesus continues to do and teach through his spirit working in the disciples. So Luke then happens to record what, what takes place right before the ascension, 
in uh, verse four, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Now, they lived in Galilee, so you could say that when Jesus says to them, don't leave Jerusalem, uh, you could say that they were gonna leave Jerusalem and just go back to Galilee. But what I think is much more clear here is that they knew that they were going to be the ones to take the message of repentance and reconciliation to all the world, leaving from Jerusalem. And so at this point, they are about to leave. So why does he tell them to stay? He wants them to receive the promise of the Father. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, why would they leave Jerusalem? Because they would be heading out on the mission of mercy and reconciliation. What's the promise of the Father? The promise of the Father is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says in verse 4 and 5. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a necessary element if we are to go and preach the good news of the gospel. But not only that, the Holy Spirit is necessary if you and I are to even live as Christians. Remember in, at the end of Mark, the, the women leave and they're terrified, uh, ter- terrified and afraid. They're, they're terrified. Somebody tweet that. They're terrified. And at that point, Mark is recording and he's saying they were told by angels themselves to go and, and you know, tell the disciples they leave and they tell no one, right? Here in this passage in Luke, Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, peace, and they're terrified. They're absolutely undone with terror and fear. Um, if someone wants to grab the kids, we're going to be, thank you. The Holy Spirit, which Jesus is telling us to wait, or telling the disciples to wait for in Jerusalem before they go and spread the good news of, of the gospel, that is, Yahweh has fulfilled all of his promises. He did not lie to any of the prophets or patriarchs. He has redeemed Israel by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and Son of God, who has come to live in the midst of his people. And not only that, he has even given them forgiveness in the midst of their killing him. That is the good news. And these disciples are going to go from Jerusalem to the utmost parts of the the earth. That that was kind of the basis of our series that we did last year in in Acts, in the Acts of the Apostles, that, that the gospel was Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the utmost parts of the earth. And so here we see a magnificent harmony at the end of Easter with Jesus sending out his disciples, but he doesn't send them out just yet. He says, you're going to go race, but it's not time to go. The Spirit absolutely must be in our midst because he is the Spirit of life. And, and as such, as the Spirit of life, he is the only one who can sustain and maintain our hearts. He's the one, as we said last week, who will replace that fear because, as Romans 5.5 5 says, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. And we know that the love of God is a perfect love which casts out fear. Without the Spirit, we can do absolutely nothing. And so as we close Easter, we turn to Ascension, we turn to Pentecost, and we eagerly await for Jesus not only to reign on the throne of heaven, but also to send the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would cause us to magnify your son's victorious resurrection from the dead and celebrate with Uh, with fervent and rejoicing hearts next week in 
his ascension, that he not only defeated death and overcame our sin and iniquity, but that he himself went up into the heavens and entered into the throne and took a seat at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we ask you that you would grant us the gift of of patience as we wait to celebrate ascension in Pentecost, and that we would be refilled with the Spirit this year again, every day, but in a significant way, that through celebrating Pentecost, we would realize that you are sending us out to go out into all the world and to transform it into your kingdom. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.